As I mentioned last week, originally, and if you've looked at the schedule, the way that uh, this was supposed to go uh, was last week would be, uh, you know, seeking God in suffering, and this week would be seeking God in death. And as I said to somebody, I've had enough. Um, you know, it's I, the 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 times when I have to deal with something quite difficult. You know, basically, Michelle just sort of grabs my elbow and shuffles me along to the car. Um, you know, or you know, mops me up with a sponge and rings me back out when we get home. Uh, I, you know, we we need something a little bit less intense uh, to close with. So, one of the things that struck me as I was preparing for last week was how much the life of Jesus taps into each one of these ideas that we've covered over the course of this summer. And so uh, it, it seemed to me that that would be a good place for us to be able to, uh, to, to conclude is seeking God in the footsteps of Christ. So I don't know if I've done this um, sort of little bit with you before, uh, but I'll, um, it's something that I do with my students in my Intro to the Bible class every semester. So uh, if, I, if I have done it with you, just, just nod along, you know, um, you know, like I'm one of your beloved grandchildren and you're just about to, you know, pat me on the head and give me a Werther's or something um, and just pretend like, you know, you've never heard it before. But, you know... I'm at the point in terms of my reflection about theology that uh, I'm quite comfortable with paradoxes. In fact, I, I think all of the best parts of Christianity are paradoxical. Uh, and so whether it's the issue of sovereignty or free will, if it's the issue of uh, salvation by faith or works, all of these things that, that seemingly are incompatible on a certain level, uh, the transcendence of God or the eminence of God, they, they just don't bother me. I, I accept both of them. I assume, um, uh, as I, I've talked to Dr. Carmichael before, that you know, it's, it's a bit like um, you know, the issue of light on a spectrum. I can't see ultraviolet or infrared light because my eyes aren't meant to see those things. It doesn't mean they're not there. And so uh, when, uh, when I see certain things about theology that I can't quite understand, I assume that God understands them, and one day I will too when we get that beatific vision and are able to see him face to face. Uh, for now, I just accept. I can't quite square the circle of sovereignty and free will. Well, one of the issues that Christians have always wrestled with is the issue of Jesus' humanity and divinity. There's no good way to put these two items together. Now, that doesn't mean that we just get to pick. That's not an orthodox Christian uh, you know, position. We have to accept them both. And I'll, I'll give you a little story that, that tells you how uh, in some denominations they really think uh, you know, carefully about this kind of stuff. Uh, my beloved wife and I, we were in uh, Jerusalem along with my parents. We were at the Church of the Large you know, Dome that's there as part of the Constantinian Church. And uh, if you, the chapel is there because it marks the traditional place for uh, the, the tomb of Jesus. And so it's, uh, it, you know, millions of pilgrims over the years have gone in, gone into this chapel and, uh, you know, prayed. In fact, they, they have monks that are there and one of their main jobs is to be the toughs. Who, who, you know, pull the people back out of there because, you know, some people, this is the only time they'll ever go there, and it's, you know, such a moving moment, and they just want to stay, and they, they don't want to leave, and they almost have to drag them, you know, back out of there. So, 
So uh, the, the time has come and we've made our way through this long line and we're, we've come around the side and we're just about to go in. It's this little small door that you go into, into the first chamber and then into the, the place where the, uh, the traditional spot for the tomb is. By the way, you know, it's, when I take people to Israel, I'll say, well, you know, uh, th this, is, this is like <laughs> the spot that you've heard of and this is near the spot that you've heard of and this is the spot almost certainly the spot. Uh, now, whether or not that exact chapel is on the exact spot where the tomb was, you know, that's maybe not, but you're within a few feet uh, at that moment from where the tomb of Jesus was. So it's pretty cool to be there. So we get ready to go in and here comes this young acolyte and he, he sort of pulls me by the arm aside and he says, we need to wait just one minute. And here comes a, a, a Roman Catholic priest who has his censer doing incense, and he's going to go into the tomb, and he's going to say certain prayers and blessings and so forth. And so he, he steps out, well, <laughs> in that this church is owned by seven different religious groups, they're not going to let one one-up the other. And so uh, the, the next guy who comes is the Greek Orthodox priest. Well, the nice thing is the acolyte is giving me the play-by-play -play as this happens. This is the Roman Catholic priest. He is coming to do prayers and so forth. So he leaves. And, oh, this is the Greek Orthodox priest. He is coming to do prayers. And after him comes the Coptic priest. And so this is, you know, Egyptian Orthodox, basically. And the acolyte says to me, this is, this is the Coptic priest. They believe that Jesus has one nature. They are wrong. You know, I'm like, I just came to see Jesus. I, you know, really, I, I don't, I don't want to start any international incidents or anything. But, but I mean, you could tell it was like right at the surface for him, the nature of the relationships between Jesus' human divine natures, uh, right there, right there at the surface. It's an important issue. It's one Christians have always wrestled with, and they started wrestling with it very early on in Christianity. Uh, almost within the New Testament period, there are two different groups that you'll find. One's called Ebionites, and the other one's called Docetists. And these two kind of took opposite visions of Christianity. The, uh, the Ebionites were Jewish Christians, and so their faith was impacted by their history in Judaism. So, for example, they loved the law. I uh, thought that the law still applied to Christians, and so as a result of that, James and Matthew loved them. Paul, not so much. Uh, they didn't really have a whole lot of time for Paul. When it came to Jesus, they had no problem with the idea that Jesus was a man. What they struggled with was the idea that Jesus could be divine because it conflicted with their notion of monotheism. So Jesus could be the Messiah, he could have lived a perfect life, he could have been all those things, but they just struggled with the notion that he could actually be divine. Now, the Docetists were Greek Christians, and so they were the mirror image of the other group. When it came to the law, they were what we would call antinomian, did not believe the law applied. As a result, they loved Paul, but they didn't like James or Matthew one bit. And when it came to Jesus, well... They, they didn't have any problem with the notion that Jesus was divine. They couldn't accept the idea that Jesus was human. Now, their issue was, as part of Greek philosophy that thinks of the material world as evil, something you want to be released from. Remember that sermon that, that Paul does on Mars Hill where he, he's you know, preaching, and they're all going, oh, this is very interesting, right until the point where he starts to talk about the resurrection. And that's when people start, oh, come on, I do, who would want to be reunited with a physical body? This is just ridiculous. And they start to laugh at him. 
the, this strand of Greek philosophy said the, the material world is bad. There's no way that... Comment to my students is that a lot of us are closet docetists. That there are... It, now, I realize that I'm in a, you know, a, a PCUSA church, and so y'all are more comfortable with the humanity of Jesus than a lot of my students. A lot of times, uh, PCUSA churches will have a lower Christology. Um, but even, I, I imagine, a lot of us here today, there's almost nothing I could say on the divinity side of Jesus, that he, he knows everything, that he's sovereign and so forth, that would give us trouble. But you start digging too deeply into his humanity, and it can make us uncomfortable. I, with my students, I'm not going to delve too deep into this uh, here, but I'll say, um, could Jesus have gotten married? And suddenly you'll see people start to squirm because the issue of Jesus noticing the cute Jewish girl who's there in his audience and being attracted to her, we go, I, 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 I don't think Jesus would do that. I mean, that doesn't sound very Jesus-like, does it? And yet Hebrew said he was tempted in every way, just as long lists of this is that part of Jesus' humanity is that Jesus, too, had to seek God. Jesus' relationship with God is not something that's just a given. It's something that he has to pursue. And we know this because there are these moments where God affirms something to Jesus. For example, at his baptism, right? You know, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And there are moments where Jesus has to deliberately go and seek after God. In the wilderness, for example. We'll talk about this in a moment. Um, it, it says, um, the Spirit led him out into the wilderness. This is a, a, a moment of, now I look, Jesus is divine. And yet there's this element of spiritual growth that takes place in the wilderness. Jesus is divine and yet he has to go and pray on a mountain to God to restore his relationship. Jesus is divine, and yet he has to go on vacation. There is a moment where he leaves the Holy Land and goes up to Tyre and Sidon over there on the Lebanon coast. He goes to the beach um, and takes a vacation. I, I don't know what it was like at the beach. You know, it's tough to body surf when you just walk on the water instead of... That was mildly humorous there. Um, but, uh, the, you know, those kinds of moments, the, even Jesus has to seek God. And we find in Jesus' pattern of seeking God something that can be helpful for our own pattern of seeking God. We have covered in this course uh, the idea that we seek God in Scripture, in nature, in fellow humans, in worship, in silence, in doubt, and in suffering and death. I think Jesus seeks God in each and every one of these ways. If we start off with Scripture, Jesus talks constantly about Scripture. When Jesus is faced with opponents, his standard line is, have ye not read? This is the way that he replies. They took uh, for granted that the Scriptures were authoritative. And so when they're going to settle an argument, this is what they appeal to. They appeal to Scripture. There's that moment, I know you all know of it, when the, uh, the disciples on the Sabbath, they're walking with Jesus, and they're picking little heads of grain. And, you know, you rub them in your hands to get the, the husk off of them, and then you eat them. It's just a snack. But you're not supposed to be doing that on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees confront them, and they say, well, you know, why are you letting your disciples do this? And Jesus' reply to the Pharisees is, have ye not read? 
about what David did when he and his men were hungry, how they went to the temple and they said, give us the showbread, it's okay. And the, you know, the point that Jesus is making there is that uh, sometimes human needs trump ritual requirements. Um, and he, he concludes with saying, and I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, so I'm the one who gets to tell you what's okay and what's not okay for the Sabbath. But Jesus, he appeals to scripture. Jesus, I, we talked about this when we were going through this, Jesus recognizes that scripture is complicated. Although Jesus says Scripture is authoritative, he also recognizes that sometimes Scripture comes from one issue from two angles. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he continually says, You have heard there are passages in the Hebrew Bible about wiping out the Canaanites. And there are other passages that are meant to counter those sorts of passages, like Ruth. The, the hero of Ruth, the heroine of Ruth, is Ruth, a Moabite. This is the kind of story that is supposed to counter some of those notions that we have to get rid of all of these people. We are, are the inheritors sometimes of two different traditions, and Jesus says, well, I want you to go for this higher tradition. And so it's not just thou shalt not murder, it's don't be angry. Or not just thou shalt not commit adultery, but don't lust. It's not just an eye for an eye, it's turn the other cheek and go the extra mile and love your neighbor as yourself, those are the traditions that Jesus appeals to. Jesus, I don't think, would have any use for the notion that we can just take Scripture and set it aside and say it doesn't count anymore. Jesus is the one who says in John, the Scripture cannot be broken, um, is the way that he puts it. Jesus recognizes the authority of Scripture, even though he recognizes that Scripture can be complicated. Don't hurt yourself, Tom. Um, I had a student one time, Tom will love me continuing to pick on him for this, who field stripped his computer in my class because he thought that his computer was making this alarm. And I mean, he's turned it off, he has stripped the battery out of it, he's doing everything that he can only to realize that it was his phone and not his computer that was making the sound. It was quite, it was, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Godfather 2, but it's the scene where the guy, the landlord who has overcharged the old lady can't get out of the, 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 uh, the, the store where they are and is, you know, just completely flustered. This was this kid. I never pick on those kinds of moments. And so I just let it slide in grace and kindness. I tell my students that sarcasm, <laughs> watch with the cough there, um, that sarcasm is one of my spiritual gifts. Um, so um, <laughs> we, we had a great moment where one of my students asked one of my sons, is your dad as sarcastic at home as he is in class. And my son, it was one of my moments where I was most proud of him. He said, well, I don't know what he's like in class, but it's pretty rough at home. <laughs> so it was a great moment. My point with Jesus and the scripture is, Jesus immerses himself in scripture. Jesus recognizes that scripture is a fundamental part of a life of faith. To seek God, one needs to seek God in the scriptures. Second idea is in nature, uh, Jesus and nature. You know, I don't think there's any way around it. It's true that in some sense, environmentalism or conservationism, these are the product of modern wealthy societies. Um, you know, for the most part, uh, as uh, you know, the one person has said, uh, for most human beings, life has been nasty, brutus, and short. 
Um, and so life has been quite difficult and people did what they had to do to survive. It's only once we start to sort of get past that to a little uh, degree with the Enlightenment, the beginning of the um, uh, the, the Industrial Re Revolution, or at least the pre-Industrial Revolution, where people start to take a, a greater awareness of nature and so forth. So the, the sort of modern uh, John Muir style of conservation is a, a relatively new phenomenon. And yet, Scripture is filled with comments about how God reveals himself to us in nature. And it seems to me that Jesus does connect with those stories. Two of the most important stories in the life of Jesus are Jesus' interactions with the sea. That moment when Jesus says to the waves, you know, be quiet, be still, and they obey him. That moment when he walks on the water, these are moments when Jesus is tapping into a very Hebrew Bible notion that creation is not as it ought to be now, and yet God is going to make it the way that it ought to be that God is going to intervene and finally control the sea. Jesus is putting down a down payment when he interacts with the sea in this way. And it's interesting to me how much Jesus sees nature as a blessing from God. When Jesus wants to say to his followers, be good not just to people who are good to you, but to people who are bad to you too. The way that he expresses this when he says um, that, you know, you need to not just salute those who salute you, you need to be kind to everyone. He says concerning God, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Now, his point in that illustration is if God can bless both good people and bad people with sun and rain, well, then you can follow what we're looking for. I think at a certain point, I'm like, Lord, that's enough blessing for me for this summer. We'd have a little bit less rain and a little bit less sun, and I would be fine. Um, Jesus sees in the very sunshine and the rain examples of the blessing of God. He says later on in the um, Sermon on the Mount, when he's talking about not worrying about financial things, what does he turn to but nature? Consider the lilies of the field an example of the touch of God upon creation. There is a kind of beauty that is reflective of God's care and God's blessing that is there. When we surround ourselves with nature, one of the things that we see is an echo of God. It's a complicated echo because creation is not as it should be. That's why Jesus walks on the water and calms the sea. And yet there's also a beauty that is there at the same time. This beauty is something that Jesus taps into and shares with us. Jesus seeks God in scripture and in nature. How about with humanity? With humanity. You know, Jesus could be tough on people when they didn't get with the program. Um, you know, I, I, uh, one of my little sarcastic sayings is uh, teamwork is everybody doing what I say. Um, you know, and I, I think there, there are these moments when that, that kind of system works quite well. When I was teaching my high schoolers, that was a great, you know, the beatings will continue until morale improves, uh, was one of my, you know, uh, my sayings there. Um, Jesus could be quite tough on people when they weren't getting the program. You, you have heard the lines from Jesus, oh, ye of little faith, or why did you doubt uh, in those moments? And yet at the same time, Jesus never gave up on people. 
He just continued to go after them. And I think it is accurate to say that Jesus recognized in even these you know, people who were around him who were full of follies and foibles a reflection of the image of God. When Jesus is sitting there and the little kids want to come up to him and the disciples are, are pushing them away and not letting them, what is Jesus' response to them? Suffer the little children and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of heaven. What he is saying is when you look at this child, when you look at the innocence that is stamped on them, and much like nature, it's a complicated innocence. You know, it's, children are, are both innocent and, you know, thoroughgoingly, you know, uh, evil right down to their hearts um, from the, you know, what was it? Uh, evil is bound up in the heart of the child. The rod will drive it far from them. It's one of those parables or uh, proverbs that's there. Our son Samuel, God bless him. We were in Israel. He celebrated his first birthday in Israel. He was, uh, you know, uh, uh, literally 12 months old. We're in this little flat that we've rented there because we were living there for a couple of months and then eat them one after another. It just brings a tear to my eye. His younger brother would have none of that. And so when Samuel would line things up, Elijah was Godzilla storming through the streets of Tokyo and knocking things over. And so that was, you know, part of their, uh, their childhood uh, arguments with one another. But there Samuel is, 12 months old. The kid can't even walk or talk, you know, properly yet. And, and he's got his Cheerios and he takes a Cheerio and he drops it on the floor. And I said, Samuel, don't drop your food on the floor. And that boy took a Cheerio, looked me dead in the eye, did just like this, and dropped it. Twelve months old. Do not tell me the children are not born with a sin nature. Um, you know, and so we... Applied the Board of Education to his seat of knowledge, and we didn't drop any more Cheerios. But, you know, this is a 12-month-old in just outright defiance at that moment. And yet, on the other hand, is there anything more innocent than a child? It's a complicated innocent, innocence, but it's there nonetheless. Jesus says, look at these kids. These kids are what heaven is like. The, um, Jesus sees in these children, this, uh, this, this reflection of who we are as God's children. And you know, this is not the only time that Jesus looks at human beings and highlights the positives in human beings rather than just the negatives. There's that wonderful story. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums, but a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. Then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is Jesus seeing the example of the widow with the widow's might and praising her. Jesus does this regularly. There's the most famous story in the Bible, the Good Samaritan. 
where he praises this person who sees someone in need and acts like his neighbor and takes care of him. Even some of the tougher stories, like when Jesus is interacting with a Syrophoenician woman, what this story is ultimately about is his encouraging this woman to pursue him and chase after him. And he says to her at the end, I haven't seen such great faith even in Israel. Jesus is a fan of human beings. He's calling human beings to their higher calling Jesus recognizes our frailty, but he still reaches out to us. Jesus sees in humanity an echo of God. When we see in our fellow human beings that stamp of the image of God that says there's something bigger than just biology behind us, there is that divine spark inside of each one of us. Worship. Jesus, I think, seeks God in worship. It's interesting that Jesus continues the rituals of the Hebrew Bible. Um, I, you know, I, as I've said to y'all many times, I come from a, a low church Protestant tradition, and so we would say, "Oh well, we don't have rituals." Ah, uh, if you were to look at our bulletin, you know, for every Sunday, it's the same service again and again and again. That is nothing if not ritual. It's just ritual that's not as pretty as the ritual that you all have. Jesus, I think, recognizes the power of ritual. It says in Luke 4, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. Jesus went to the synagogue on Shabbat. Jesus saw the value of worship in community. One of the lines that is so memorable from, uh, from Jesus is, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with you also. Jesus recognizes the need for us to assemble together. I mean, come on. Wasn't that one of the worst parts of our time of COVID? is there's just no way, I mean, my, Ms. Shayla, God bless her, you know, she has had to experience this with her kindergarten class because uh, in the spring of 2020, when they shifted to entirely online learning, you know, it, it wasn't that hard for me dealing with a bunch of, you know, college students. I had taught online before, I had all these videos prepared. It was just a matter of making our learning service, you know, cooperate with what I wanted them to do. Not, not people, but just the, the program we use. It was quite easy for me, and most of my students, you know, did just fine with it. Imagine doing Zoom sessions with a bunch of six-year-olds. And so they, there they had, she would, you know, normally she would just give them work and they would do it kind of independently, but, you know, she was committed to them, and so on a regular basis they would have the whole class get together. Oh, my goodness. You've got 16 to 18 kids all talking at the same time. Some of them going, can you see my eye? You know, right there in the camera screen and so forth. And these two are talking to one another and so forth. It's just, the, I, as I, I spoke to someone uh, recently, you know, they said the kids just didn't learn anything. Those couple of months where we were finally back together, you were the one I was talking to, yeah, that's right, um, about how they had uh, continued to be isolated. They learned more in the last couple of months when they were together than they did in the whole year when they were apart. They're gathered together in my name. I am among them. He's saying, people, worship together, get together. Jesus says in John, I give you a new commandment that you love one another. 
Just as I have loved you, you also should love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Part of worship is a loving community. Jesus says that we find God better and people recognize God better in us when we love one another, when we love one another in community. Jesus and silence. I find it absolutely fascinating that Jesus needs his own wilderness experience. I I don't find it shocking that the Israelites need their wilderness experience. It makes perfect sense to me. I don't find it shocking that Moses needs his wilderness experience to figure out who he is or that David has to go down to Ein Gedi, that Paul has to go out into the wilderness. Even Jesus needs his moment in the wilderness. His moment where, I mean, if, if, if his interaction with Satan in those passages is any kind of guide, it's where Jesus has to learn to trust God as opposed to even his own power. When Satan says to him, you know, turn these rocks into bread, it, Jesus could have done so. But he chooses not to do so. And he says, no, man shall not eat by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What he's saying is it's more important that I trust God than that I trust in myself even. This is a moment where Jesus has to go to the wilderness to discover something about himself, to discover something about a life of trust in God. Even Jesus needs that wilderness experience where Jesus is alone with God, where Jesus experiences those moments of silence and privation to be able to actually draw closer to God. How fascinating that that's the way his ministry starts, that he's baptized as Jesus and doubt. Jesus certainly experienced doubt. This is where I think what we talked about with the humanity of Jesus comes so much to the fore. If you, you know, each gospel comes at Jesus from a little different angle. And if you want to sort of set at two ends, uh, Mark presents us with the most human Jesus. John presents us with the most divine Jesus. Um, And so they they both have that humanity and divinity balance. But if there is a spectrum, certainly in Mark is where we see Jesus' response to things is so human. Uh, there are moments where he gets frustrated with his disciples. Um, there's, a, a, there's a great line. Well, I don't know if it's a great line. I've, I've probably shared this one before with you. But uh, did any of y'all know the, uh, the loaf of promises? Everybody, you know, the loaf of promises. It's, it's this little ceramic loaf of bread that you could put on your table, and it would have little cards in it that had Bible verses. And so, you know, when you're, 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 you're not feeling all that great and so forth, then your grandmother would say, come, come with me, son, to the loaf of promises, and then she shares a Bible verse with you. There are verses in the Gospels that don't make the loaf of promises. There, there's one where Jesus, he, he comes up upon a scene, and there's a kid, and it, it looks like for all the world like he's got epilepsy. It says that he, you know, he grows rigid, and he foams at the mouth, and he falls down, and, and, and he's, the people say... I asked your disciples to heal him, but they couldn't. And Jesus says, oh, you faithless generation. How much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? 
I don't think that one makes the loaf of promises. <laughs> I, you know, if I, I toy with my students, my athletes, I say, you know, so if you're doing an autograph for somebody you don't like and you want to put a Bible verse underneath it, just put that reference on there. How much longer must I put up with you? Um, it's, Jesus can get frustrated when the disciples, especially in Mark, they are just pugnaciously resistant to Jesus' message. And Jesus experiences this very human kind of doubt in Mark. It's in Mark's gospel that he goes to the garden and he says, God, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He's saying, God, I, I don't want to have to go through with this. It's in Mark that Jesus' one and only word on the cross is, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And then he cried out with a loud cry and breathed his last. His only words in Mark's gospel on the cross are to say to God, God, I don't understand what's going on here. Jesus certainly experienced doubt and expressed doubt. Suffering and death. You know, there's a fascinating balance of protest and trust in Jesus' suffering and death at the end. That, uh, that one line, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then the way that he dies in Luke, in Luke 23, then Jesus crying with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's this balance between, on the one hand, God, I don't understand, and on the other hand, God, I'm not letting go. Into your hand I commit my spirit. It's very similar to Job-like language, isn't it? Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. I'm not going to quit, no matter what happens, God. All of these ways that we have looked at this summer about seeking God, I think the life of Jesus taps into each and every one of them. So what are the lessons to be learned from Jesus when it comes to suffering. Well, let me give you four things that I think we can learn. First of all, Jesus was not a loner, and yet he learned, or excuse me, Jesus was not a loner, and yet he recognized the importance of time alone. Jesus was not a loner. He, he gathered a group of supporters around him. He called his disciples friends, um, he depended upon them in moments like the garden. And yet, at the same time, he recognized the importance of time alone. There were those moments when he went up onto the mountain by himself to pray. There were those moments when he worshiped in synagogue, but those moments when he prayed by himself. Jesus balances these two ideas. He's not a loner. And yet he recognizes the importance of time alone. I, I find the way Jesus prays in the, the garden to be sort of the best example of this. Because Jesus, you know, he's got the 12 with him. And so, well, I guess at this point it's the 11. Jesus has the 11 with him. And he leaves them in a certain spot. It's almost certainly this little grotto that's there. And all of us together. And then that group of three is those people that we've grown closer to that have a stake in us that can hold us accountable, that can call us out for when we're doing something that's not right, that we can lean on quite a loner. But I am an, an introvert, 
and it, it's, it's not easy for me. I mean, I, it's easy for me to teach from up here. It's difficult for me to, to interact on smaller bases. I, was, I delivered a paper to a, a conference that was, I was supposed to have been in Germany this past week in Wuppertal uh, at a conference, but the COVID uh, wiped that one out. So we did it uh, via uh, Zoom, and delivering the paper was no you know, real problem or anything like that. But then they were going to have a kind of social and the social, we would all get together, you know, with a drink on Zoom and so forth. And I, I confessed to my wife, I said, every instinct in my body says no. That's just not my natural element to get into the, the social. And I said, I just got to do it. And so I... I forced myself, forced myself to interact with other people. Um, as some of you who are extroverts, you know, you just love it. But it's just, you know, it's, it's, we joke that we, we, uh, when we go to some kind of social, if you just spin around in place, it looks like you're mingling with the rest of the crowd. And so, uh, you know, it, but I mean, that's just sort of who we are. We're both kind of introverts there. It's not easy for me to always be with other people, whereas some people are energized by it. For me, it's a little bit of a draining, you know, and I have to recuperate from that. So for me, the emphasis has to be on don't be a loner. You need other people. For others of you, you feel naked unless you're clothed with a crowd. And maybe sometimes what you need is that alone time where you have to face those issues between you and your creator in a more intense and serious way. Jesus was not a loner, but he recognized the importance of time alone. Secondly, Jesus spent time in word and worship. Jesus knew scripture. He knew that it was complicated, but he knew that it was authoritative. He went to Jerusalem to worship on a regular basis, he joined together with others at the temple. Jesus knew the word and he participated in worship. Number three, Jesus voiced his doubts, but he still held on. Jesus' prayer in the garden, it's the perfect prayer. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. I don't want to do this. Yet not what I will but what you will be done. That's our prayer. Our prayer is, God, this is what I want, but even if I don't get what I want, I'm still going to hold on to you. This is the moment that I mentioned to you before with Peter, when Peter, who just I just love him as a disciple, um, he uh, often wrong, never in doubt, um, no, never an unspoken thought uh, for Peter. This is, I just, I just love him, but with Peter, there's that moment when Jesus has said all of those difficult things and the crowd has dissipated. And Jesus says to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? And that's when Peter says, where else would we go? You are the one who holds the words of life. We voice our doubts. We pray with the intensity of the Psalms or Job. And then at Jesus was determined to live out the character of God. He was determined to live out the character of God. Jesus says as a synopsis of who he is, the Son of Man came to serve and not to be served. I think there is something to be said for seeking God just by continuing to go through the motions. 
that if we just continue to go through the motions in those moments when we don't feel it, in those motions when God seems far away, but we've said, I'm, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to continue to go through the motions until it feels real again. You know, I, 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 uh, when I was a, a young uh, you know, teenager, I loved to run. But now when I say I love to run, I, I love to run like long distances, sometimes up to 200 yards. Um, those were the long distances that I liked. I, you know, I loved running the 100. I loved running the 200. I even in a few moments of foolishness ran the 400 and the 800. But, but it was the sprints that I really liked. Those were the things. And I, I, I watched the marathon uh, yesterday in the Olympics and, and had, you know, few thoughts other than, you know, <laughs> I remember at a certain point the commentator said, you know, you wonder what's going through their mind right now. And I said to Michelle, how did I take such a terribly wrong turn in life that this is where I am? Now, some of you may be, you know, marathoners and, and have your little show-off 26.2 stickers on the back of your cars and so forth. My, mine was much closer to the Auburn sticker that said .01, you know, for the one-second thing. There was about as far as I wanted to go. It, I, I had no interest in running a marathon. But I have read something about marathoners before. And I know that there is that moment when you hit the wall, and there are also moments of euphoria that come after it. So what are you supposed to do? Well, when you're hitting the wall, you just keep going through the motions. You just keep plodding on in hopes that that euphoria will come back to you eventually. This is, in many respects, what the Christian life is like. There are moments when we hit a spiritual wall. And it just feels like everything's against us. And what can we do? Nothing but continue to go through the motions until finally we get past that. And we get that moment of spiritual um, joy again. When in doubt, my suggestion is act like Jesus. Serve others even when you don't feel like serving. When you do that, you're following in the footsteps of Jesus. Pray even when you don't feel like praying. Even if the only thing that you can do, because you just can't conjure up your own words, is turn to the book of Psalms and read aloud a psalm and say, this will be my prayer. And keep hanging on. The spiritual life is a difficult life. A life of faith is not a life of ease. I, I, I'm always amazed at one of the criticisms of Christianity is that, you know, oh, it's just you know, pie in the sky and all of that kind of thing. And I go, what are you talking about? A life of faith is a hard life because you have to actually think through some of the hard issues and find hope and purpose and meaning that's genuine hope and purpose and meaning instead of just an illusion. When we are in doubt, continue to seek God, continue to hang on, continue to hold on, serve when you don't feel like serving, pray when you don't feel like praying, and hope in God that one day our seeking God will be met by finding God when we see him face to face. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, um, I, I don't confess to understand you. And so I don't confess to understand why the spiritual life is oftentimes so difficult. 
All I can pray is that you will reward our seeking you with the joy of our finding you. God, bring us to you and let us see you face to face, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.